This morning we find ourselves in Psalm 127. This is another psalm that was asked by one of you to, for me to preach. And so uh, here it is, finally. It's been months, actually, since I received that email. So, but I did not forget it. It is here before us. Psalm 127, I'm going to read the entirety of the Psalter. This is the Word of God. Let's give attention to it now. It is a song of a sense. It is a psalm of Solomon. He writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the living and true God. Let's ask for his help now as we consider this portion of it. And the preaching of it even this morning, let's pray. Father, now as we turn our attention to this, your word, a psalm that most of us probably know well, but a psalm that is given to us on this day and this hour, we pray for your spirit to help us attend to all that is said and heard, and may you teach us, we pray for Christ's sake, amen. It was a late Bible teacher who, uh, retelling a story of a time in which he had heard the late Dr. R.C. Sproul uh, speak or teach or preach, whatever the case may be. But here is what Dr. Sproul said. He said, of all the words in the English language, the word useless is the word I hate the most. And least if it was applied to me. I am willing, he said, to work hard, start early, labor late. I am willing to forego present pleasures or benefits, but not if it was useless. Because if you say that what I do is useless, you are saying that I am useless. And with that means, and that means in some sense, some way, I just don't count. The Bible teacher telling this story of the time he heard these words from Dr. Sproul continued and said, most of us would agree wholeheartedly, but what strikes me strongly and sadly is that much of what we pour our lives and energies into is just that. Useless. At least in the light of eternity. No one here, I suspect, wants to be considered useless. Every one of us, I think, if the truth be told and if you were to be honest, uh, most of us would candidly say that we want to find some value, some substance in our lives. We want to be considered worthful or worth uh, something. We want to be considered useful. No one here wants to think that their labor is in vain. No one wants to think that raising children is a waste of time and amounts to nothing. No one here wants to think that the labors they pour out on the job and serving on the session, the diaconate, standing in the pulpit preaching is useless. 
for that which is done in vain. What the psalm is saying to us, however, is that it is. It is all of that. Every bit of it is all useless if it is not done with trust and hope in the God of heaven. It is all of that if you it is not done with, with commitment in word and deed unto the Lord. In a sense in which we trust Him daily, whatever it is we're doing. Driving the kids to school. Laboring on the assembly line in the plant up in Princeton. Sitting downstairs in a study alone, reading scripture and praying. Raising children, having them. Brothers and sisters, it is useless if it is done without the Lord. Now I wonder as we approach this psalm, and I admit that I'm probably approaching it in a way that you didn't expect or not expecting, you trust the God of heaven with all of these things I've mentioned and many more. In the mundane of life, in the routine of your experiences, do you trust him? You find yourself placing every ounce of energy and hope in the Lord of glory. My friends, you must, if you do not want to come to the end of it all, the end of your life, and here it was all in vain. It was all useless. You lived and you died. And all that awaits for you is hopelessness of eternity. No, what you want to hear, I trust and I hope and, and I do pray, is well done, thou good and faithful servant. And you only hear that, my friends, as if when you trust him and place him in every sphere of existence. The psalmist here highlights a couple of those areas. We're going to get to that in a minute. But as we look at this psalm, it's unusual, isn't it? It's one that is not penned by David. It's not penned by the sons of Korah, Asaph. It's penned by Solomon. But as you read the psalm and you hear the words of the psalm, it, it reminds you of things that Solomon himself has said in the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, words that he uses as it is penned as a song of a sense. A psalm, a psalm that was sung even as the people of God ascended to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. It is the eighth psalm in a 15-psalm section starting from Psalm 120 running through Psalm 134. But what is interesting about the context, and it does matter, that given the theme of the psalm, and given the activity of the people as they would ascend the mountain to worship at Jerusalem, worship itself is an act of trust. For it is there that we learn in worship how to trust the Lord by listening to what He says. And 
than acting on what he tells us. Some scholars, some brilliant geniuses think that Solomon didn't write this psalm, but that's misplaced. There's something wrong with its location or its its authorship. But when you understand the psalm as you should, it makes perfect sense for it to be a song that was used in the ascending of God's worship. So with God's help, I want to show you this morning that unless you trust the Lord and place him in the center of your lives, what you do will be in vain. I know that's kind of blunt. I'm from New York after all. But that's what the psalm is teaching. I'm going to show you that unless you trust the Lord and place him in the center of your lives, what you do will be in vain. There's no in-between. It will either be useful or useless. Two points as we consider this psalm. I'm thankful to one commentator, at least for the general heading of this, these two major, major points. For he captures the essence, really, of the two big areas of our lives. First, the life at work. The life at work. We see this in the first two verses, and then we see in the final three verses the life at home. The life at work, and then the life at home. Let's first consider the life at work. There are really, in these two verses, two unifying principles. The first one is demonstrated by the way in which the writer, Solomon himself, uses it three times in the first two verses, he uses this word vanity. Unless the Lord builds the house, he says, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain, he says. I mean, it's like, well, okay, I got it. He break repetition driving a central point home, pushing the reader to see the emphasis. It's right there, right in front of you. The term literally means empty. It is as it were a chasing after the wind. It is the same words that the writer of this psalm uses when he declares these very truths in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I don't know about you, but I read Ecclesiastes and I think to myself, why am I reading this book? It's almost discouraging in some sense. Until you understand where he's going. One commentator says that the term here echoed three times is reminding us that the work that we have to do, whether um, whether it is building a house or watching over a city, is all pointless Meaningless if it's done without God. Now you might think, okay, well I don't have to listen anymore because I'm with God. I'm redeemed. I'm a Christian. I'm fine. I'm set. Everything's happy. I'm good. I'm going on. on, My brain's moving on to something else. Wrong. Remember, this was written to the people of God. And it is possible indeed for a Christian to read these verses and think, That you're all fine and great, but the reality is you're not trusting him at all. 
You're trusting in your own abilities. You're trusting in your own worth. You're trusting in your own intellect. You're trusting in your own uh, accolades. You're trusting in the piece of paper hanging from the wall in a study somewhere or office. No, no, this writer says very plainly, uh, unless, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You could change these words very simply. Unless the Christian who's trying to build his house does so without the Lord, he does it in vain. Unless the Christian tries to watch over the city and does it with the Lord, he watches in vain. This applies to God's people as much as it applies to the unregenerate. And I think too often in the church, we like to stand on the precipice of these kinds of psalms, and we like to shout across the the rooftops uh, to those who don't know Christ and say, see, this is you, you're you're doing these things in vain, you, you dumb people. I don't know, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. They're unregenerate. It's sad, though, when you look into the church and you see God's people not trusting him. It's almost a contradiction. But that's who he's writing this to. He gives us here, embedded in these opening verses, uh, he gives us uh, this issue, uh, really two reminders. First, unless the Lord builds the house, what house is he referencing here? Now, uh, people like me, analysts, you know, we read that and say, I wonder what he's talking about. Is he talking about the temple? He's talking about his own house. You know, Solomon built this illustrious home, bigger than the temple, you know, more glorious even. Is he talking about his father's house, David's? What house is he describing? What house is he mentioning? And frankly, if that's where you're going with this psalm, that's all fine and great, and that's something that commentators like to talk about. But if that's where you are, you're missing the point. It really doesn't matter, does it? Maybe it is the temple. Maybe it is Solomon's temple. Maybe it's a house. Maybe it's his house. Maybe it's the Lord's house. Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's mine. But the fact is that really, who cares? It doesn't matter. And it really does miss the point if we try to figure out what house is being referenced. If God is not involved, regardless of what it is, and if he is not the source of your hope and comfort as you build, then you labor in vain. That's the point. Let's not get lost in the issues. It is simply useless. You're useless. It's useless. No, maybe you're like me. I don't know, but that doesn't sound very comforting. The other reminder is here also. Building, watching, unless the Lord watches over the city. One commentator observing this very comment that seems so foreign to you and me because we don't do this. How many here stayed up last night and watched over your, your house? Stood on the, sat on the front porch with the shotgun loaded. Anyone? Anybody seen the commercial where the, the security commercial where the guy was sitting on the roof of his house all night long? We don't do that. That's strange to our context. It's foreign to our thinking, but in those days, as Solomon is writing, this was normal. 
Unless the Lord watches over the city, this commentator says the ancient world had no satellites and no advanced warning systems, so sentries stood guard on the city wall. This was a very important job because the city's security depended upon their vigilance. Think about it. There's hundreds and thousands of people behind the walls of the city, and their whole lives are dependent upon these people who are watching over the city. And they go to sleep at night, and they rest comfortably. Why? Because they know these well-trained men are doing their job. We have that kind of, don't we? We have a military, we have NORAD, we have the satellites that are watching down on Russia and every other bad guy in the world that wants to harm us. And and we, we take some comfort in that, don't we? Very important. The city security depended upon the vigilance of these people. When I was in the military, we used to have this really silly job. It was called fire guard duty. I never really could understand why. I think it was just to torture us. But be that as it may, we would stay up in the middle of the night, a couple of us, and we would wander around the barracks just in case the place caught on fire. Like it was ever going to happen anyway. But we were up. We were walking. And we were being vigilant. And we were being watchful. And our noses were checking to see if there was smoke. We were doing all of these things, but even the best of centuries does not guarantee perfect security. The best alarm systems that you can buy in the market can, can be bypassed. Hackers can get into those systems and, and turn them off. The best guards in the world can be distracted from their duties unless the Lord watches over the city, those that do so labor in vain. Where's the trust, ultimately, in the cove alarm system that I have in my home? Is it in the weapon that sits by my bedside table at night? Or is it ultimately in the Lord? Vanity, if it's not. Useless, waste of time, nothing Silly. But there's another area. Another principle that is here that can be easily missed if not read carefully. The psalm, note, does not say that as long as we put God in charge, which, by the way, he is anyway, so whether you put him there or not doesn't change anything. The psalm does not say that as long as we put God in charge and acknowledge Him in all of our activities, then we can just merely let go and let God. In a word, the psalmist is teaching responsibility. We have a responsibility to lock our doors at night. That doesn't mean, oh, I don't trust the Lord because I didn't lock my doors. Well, don't lock them. We have responsibility. We don't let go and let God. That's a modern heresy that's floated around the church uh, for way too long. A modern heresy that really robs God's people of the joy of duty. I know, you don't like that word, duty. Sounds bad. You know, there was a day when it wasn't a bad word. Now you tell people to do things and they have responsibility to do things and you get looked at like you're crazy. Parents, you give your children something to do in the house? Do they like it? 
No, but there's a joy in duty, and Solomon is not saying here, let go and let God. He's saying, be responsible. Yes, you and I have a duty to behave responsibly as we build. We have a responsibility to labor well in the home. We have a responsibility to, to watch over the city and do it as well as we're able. We have a duty to behave responsibly as we do these things. He says as much, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake. There's responsibility here for each of us. What might that look like in your home, at your job, in the church? Think through some of those things. And how in ways in which you, though trusting the Lord, still recognize your responsibility as a Christian to do what God has said to do. Because frankly, if you're not obeying the Lord, then you're not trusting Him. It's impossible. In fact, it's, it's a contradiction to say, I trust the Lord, but I'm not going to do what He tells me. Does that even make sense? Solomon says, as you're being responsible, as you're doing the things that God has told you to do, dads, to lead your families in the things of the Lord. Men, women, as you're on the job and you have an employer, you are to work as unto the Lord. You are to work faithfully. You should be the best employee in the company. As you are doing these things, you are trusting Him throughout it. Always in the center of it. Always. Each of you have a responsibility to labor diligently, but what must be remembered is that it must be done always with an eye to God's glory and God's help. What is it that you and I can do on our own anyway? What can you do on your own? Tell me if you can. What, what is it you can do? Well, I, I can preach, not without God's help. Well, I, I, can, I can teach people about the Lord, not without God's help. I, 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 can, I, I can drive to my job, not without God's help. You can't do anything without Him. You can't even breathe. I know we're so capable. And we can't even breathe on our own without God's say-so. There's nothing we can do on our own. And so as we labor, as we labor to do the things that we're responsible to do, we do it with an eye to the Lord and His glory, always in the trust and hope for Him. Whatever it is, whether you're starting a new life as a married couple, you trust the Lord. He's always in the center of that marriage. Whether you're old and decrepit and you've been married for 50 years or 60 years, you still trust the Lord. You be responsible to one another, but you trust the Lord. Children, as you labor in school, as you go to the places you're supposed to go, as you seek to be responsible, I hope you are. And if you're not, I'm sure your parents are making you be. You trust the Lord. That's not just for the old people to do. That's for children too. 
Solomon says it's all in vain if you do it without the Lord. It's all in vain if you try to do it without Him. It's all in vain. You're useless. But if you're going to do it, remember Him. Be responsible. Do what you're supposed to do. And it won't be profitless. Second, there are two behaviors. The one who toils and labors without, without putting his trust in the Lord. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine that, frankly, maybe. I don't know. Maybe you're doing that. We look across the world. I remember many times in my early days of marriage, I used to think to myself, how can anybody even get through a day married without the Lord? I still don't really know. The one who toils and labors without putting his trust in the Lord, and as one commentator states it, he says he works himself to exhaustion by getting up early and going to bed late. He works himself to an insane level of anxiousness, thinking somehow that the meaning of life is their job, their family, their bank accounts. All this leads to is endless anxiety. This is the point that Solomon is making there in verse 2. The focus is all about the job and it's about my family and my kids and, and, and this and that and the other thing. And the Lord is a distant memory from all of it. All you're doing is toiling for nothing. It's complete nonsense. It's insanity and it leads to anxiety and toil. And frankly, I think that's part of the reason why we see so much mental illness in our world. There's a quote from Business Week magazine. No, I didn't read Business Week magazine, okay? It was a quote from a commentary who wrote, read the Business Week magazine. Okay, never mind. But the title of it was, and I read this title and I thought, maybe I shouldn't read anymore. But the title is, The Confessions of a Workaholic. Now, it's like I've never been accused of that in my life. I'm tended that, I tend in that direction. Ask my wife if you don't believe me. Not just in the ministry. I've been like that pretty much from youth. But anyway, the confessions of a workaholic. He says here, this is a guy who sees himself that way. He says here, the workaholism issue is a real one for me. I am never more than a couple steps mentally from the computer. What keeps me tethered is the fear that if I stop... My whole world will come crashing in on me. It's hard to get out of that mindset for even a few minutes. What is it that this fellow is saying? I mean, you might think, sit there and think, well, what a pity. And maybe you do. It is a pity. What is this man saying? If I do not obsess about my work, my life will fall apart? Why is he fearful? The commentator commenting on this comment says, because he isn't trusting God with his work. He believes he has to be in control. He has to be the God of his work. This man is eating the bread of anxious toil. Is your trust in your job, men, women? Is that where your hope is? Man, Toyota. The God of Toyota. If it falls apart, my life will be ruined. If that's your attitude, you're missing the point. Where should your trust be? Parents? 
You place your children on a pedestal they ought not be. Something happens to your kids, your life will end. It'll be the end of it all. I'm not suggesting it would be easy. Husbands with your wives, wives with your husbands. Look, anxious toil. If it's not bathed in the presence of God and a trust in him. The other side of it, of course, is the more comforting aspect. Is the one who does toil and labor and puts his trust in the Lord. He can work hard as unto the Lord with the Lord's help and guidance. He does all the things with an eye to the glory of God and full dependence on God. This person does not need to grow anxious as he labors in his area of responsibility, whatever it may be, whatever that may be, he does it faithfully. He can have confidence that the Lord will bless it. He can work and then rest. He can do his job and then go to sleep. And not worry about the outcome, for that's the Lord's business. He can preach a sermon and not worry about the fruit that may or may not come from it. That's the Lord's business. And you know what's interesting, and some of you aren't going to like this very much, but you'll be all right. I swear, you won't, I, I'm convinced you won't die. The Lord's built this into our week every week to show us that you're either living a life trusting the Lord or you're living a life of anxious toil. And he's done that by giving us one day in seven to prove it. Not to him. Uh, but to you and me. Anxious toil. I can't work all week and then leave it with the Lord and then rest as He has commanded me. We, we know what I'm talking about. We're talking about the Lord's day. Following the Lord's day and the example of God given to us in Genesis 2 demonstrates that we find our true satisfaction in Him and not in the toil and labor of our lives. And you know why we have a hard time keeping the Lord's day? Because we don't actually believe that. And we actually think that the trust really is in what I've done all week and not in the God of heaven. It's a funny way of fleshing it right out of us, doesn't it? And by the way, this is not just my opinion. This is what the Bible teaches. The fourth commandment is still there. Those that refuse to obey the mandates of the Christian Sabbath are working themselves to death and finding their pleasure there instead of in Him. You cannot, brothers and sisters, you cannot rightly say, with any integrity, the Lord is building the house or keeping watch over the city and violate the day that God has given for his people to benefit, to rest in him. Now, I know that's not a popular subject in today's world. That's not even a popular subject in the church. It might not be a popular subject in this church. But it is the message of the Bible. The lessons and summary of these opening verses simply means that if you do not have God in your home, work, recreation, whatever it may be, if you do not have God, if you are not trusting Him, what you are doing, friends, it is meaningless. 
And nobody wants that, do they? Hear the words of the preacher, that is to say Solomon, from Ecclesiastes 12. The end of the matter, all has been heard. This is after he's gone through all the vanity of vanities and he's worked through all that stuff. And what does he say at the end? Here's his conclusion. You ready? It's really long. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's it. There's his conclusion. It's ours too. Unless we fear God and trust Him, walk with Him, as we build the house, we do it in vain. Unless we walk with the Lord, trust Him, fear Him, watching over the city, raising our children, doing our job, we labor in vain. It must be the Lord. But what's the relationship then, therefore, between life at work and life at home? It's not as though what life at home is not work. You don't think that's true? Ask anyone in this room that does it all the time. In fact, I would argue that it's harder work than the secular employment that most of us go to. But what does it have to do with it? Well, there are, again, two unifying principles that Solomon gives to us in these final verses, verses 3 to 5. First, he states very plainly that children are a heritage from the Lord. Now, every one of us in this room know that phrase. I could have walked up to you probably before the service and say, where in the Bible does it say children are a heritage from the Lord? And you would have probably gotten close, if not right. You know it's in the Bible. What does that mean? It means they are as reward. And in what sense is this true? They are a gift. As to say, they come from Him. Mom and Dad, I know you what you're thinking, and I know you think they're yours, and then they are. But you know what? They're not. And they belong to the God of heaven. Every one of the children in this room have their stamp of the God of heaven upon their forehead. They belong to Him. If you are Christian parents in this room, those children are covenant children. They are unique to Him. But they are your reward. They are given to you by God as a gift to you. They come from Him. It is the Lord who opens and closes the womb. Think of Hannah and there's many other the birth wars of Leah and Rachel. What a joke. You ever read through that? Those two, he must have been a saint, Jacob, between those two competing with their children, their offspring. The Lord opens the womb. He closes the womb. Hannah, a great example of it. What does that mean for us and as parents? Some of you are yet to have children. Some of you have them now. Some of you have raised them and they're gone. Some of you have guilt over the way you raised them. Some of you look back over your shoulder and think, I could have done things so much differently. Well, i got to tell you something. Most parents have that feeling every now and then. Some of you are in the middle of it right now. Do you do it with the Lord always in the middle? 
If the theme of the psalm is this, then certainly this is the connection that the psalmist is making here. He goes to this heritage because it is there that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will prosper and grow for generations to come. I know you want to think that this is the end-all, be-all of the world, but i got to tell you, if the Lord tarries, it's going to be on your kids to build the kingdom of God and advance it in this world. It won't be on me. I'll be in the grave a long time ago. It won't even be on you anymore. You're a gift. Treat them that way. I don't mean don't discipline them. Sorry, kids. I mean raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Raise them as they are. Raise them as though they belong to somebody else, the God of heaven, and do it the way you ought, with the Lord always in the middle. Always. The things you allow your kids to watch, or don't watch, or listen to, or read, The amount of time they spend on social media and plaster with the phone in their face all the time. Ask yourself, is this helping build the kingdom? Because as Solomon says, they are like arrows. Again, a word picture. What does this even mean? How do we express this? What is it? How are we to understand this? They are weapons. Isn't an arrow a weapon? I mean, I'm not, when I was a kid, I had a bow and arrow, a compound bow. I didn't know much about it. Amazing I didn't shoot myself in the foot or somebody else in the foot. But I know enough to know that an arrow can be used as offensive or defensive. In those days, it was used for both. In offense, they are to be raised, children that are inherited from the Lord as gifts of the Lord. They are to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They are to be raised to value the kingdom of God and hate the kingdom of darkness. They are to be raised to wage war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are to be raised as those that are marked as God's. Now you show me a family that can do this without God. And I'll show you a family that's a train wreck. You must, you must, you must raise your children. Always in the fear of the Lord. If you don't, you labor in vain. Why? Uh, I got news for you. Your children got wills. They have their own minds too. And sometimes they do what they want. In fact, they do that a lot of times. You have to trust the Lord. You trust the Lord. You trust the Lord. You trust the Lord. You keep putting the Lord in front of them, and you trust the Lord. You pray, and you pray, and you trust the Lord. That's what you do. I've often said that the only reason I'm standing here today is because my mother trusted the Lord and prayed. They're a gift. They're to be trained to be offensive against the kingdom of God, but they are also to be trained as defensive, to be trained defensively as well. They protect and guard the family name. They go, as Solomon mentions here, they go to the city gate where disputes and other legal matters are settled, and there they defend their family. Put a different way, they defend the church. They defend Christ. 
These children that are a heritage from the Lord are like arrows in the hands of godly parents who trust the Lord and continue placing the Lord in front of their kids. Oh, I know your kids, they're not going to like it all the time. That's why they're children. Two behaviors, just like we saw in the beginning in the first point, we see in this point. Two behaviors, those who raise children without the hope and trust of the Lord. Now, look, I don't know how smart you have to be. But you look around the culture and you see it all the time. The immaturity of, our, of the generation that's coming behind us is scary, to say the least. But they're being raised by people who don't fear the Lord. They're being raised by people who don't trust the Lord. They're being raised by people who are just doing what they can do because that's all they know because they're sinners and depraved. So what's our excuse? Those who raise children without the hope and trust of the Lord bring shame to the family. The unregenerate, these people, they're devoid of any trust in Christ. They raise their children according to the ways of the world. Some of you do that too, and you're Christians. They raise their children according to the ways of the world that leads to destruction. Friends, it will. You can believe it if you want. The end of it is destruction. But the regenerates aren't immune. We waffle and struggle sometimes with trusting the Lord in things and raising our kids especially. It's very hard. But there is embedded here a certain warning, I suspect, that really your home is empty without Christ. Now, you can have a home that names the name of Christ. Some of you are this. No, I'm sorry, I'm your pastor, and I, well, I know. You name the name of Christ, you come to church, you have the title. But it can still be a home without Christ. It can be a home that does not seek to lead children in the things of the Lord. Instead of cherishing and nurturing the gift given to them by the Lord, they dismantle the possibility of them ever serving him. It happens by attitude and actions. It happens when we don't exemplify the things that we ought to, mom and dad. It happens when parents confuse priorities of this life and substitute those things that are most needful for those that will not last. And I could go on and make a list of things that I've seen in this church. And it grieves me because I know what's coming. But then there are those who raise their children with the hope and trust in the Lord. And how do they do this? By simple things. It's not rocket science. God made it easy because we're a bunch of hard-headed people. We just need to be obedient. Trust the Lord. You can't obey and say, I'm trusting the Lord. You can't say, I'm disobey and say, I'm trusting the Lord. How does it exemplify by those who are doing it in their homes? It's not mechanical. It's not just outward. But it isn't lacking that either. It's exemplified by families who are committed to worshiping together as a family. That dads see the, how important this is for long term. This isn't a short term exercise. This is generational. 
praying with their kids before they go to bed at night, reading scripture to them, showing them Christ, talking to them about the gospel, focusing their weekly priorities around the kingdom of God and not everything that comes down the pipe of our culture. Modeling your own trust and dependence on the Lord. Parents, you want your children to honor the Lord's day? Then why don't you? Well, maybe you don't want your kids to honor the Lord's day. You want your kids to obey the word of God? Then why don't you? Parents are not training their children in godliness and holiness when they don't model it before their, parent, their children. Some of you are. I know that. I don't mean to just be so discouraging. You just want to give up and quit. But, well, some of you are doing these things. You keep at it. You keep trusting the Lord. Don't you just think you've arrived, you've come to some place now, and everything's great, and it'll just coast right into glory. No. You keep doing what you're supposed to do. Be responsible. Trust the Lord. It will not be in vain. What does it produce? It produces faithful servants of the kingdom. I suspect that's what Solomon is getting at there at the very end of the text when he says he shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. That is to say, these that have these children that are raised, however many the Lord gives to you, are raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord with the trust of the Lord always, will produce faithful servants of the kingdom of God, the very future generation of God's people. Why is the church weak today? Again, my, one of my favorite phrases, how smart do we have to be? It's because at some point, somewhere, mom and dads forgot God. How is it that Israel failed and miserably? Psalm 78, they forgot God. In fact, worse, they didn't tell their children about God. Deuteronomy 6, what does it say? Teach your children about me. The church is weak today because families are. So today's the day to start. Some of you need to deal with it. Some of you dads and you go home and have a real long talk with, with your wife. We're making the changes right now. This is what we're going to do. We're going to first repent, and then we're going to apologize to our kids, and then we're going to start leading them in the fear of the Lord. If we do that as a church, Satan's got no chance because they're powerful arrows in the hands of a living God that we trust. But it is Him that we trust, not our abilities. Not our ingenuity, not our schedule, not our planning, not our smarts. Him. Him. We trust. Nothing more discouraging than to know that what you're doing is useless. Boy, would that not discourage any of us. Yet, if this psalm is accurate, and it certainly is, And each of us are useless if we do what we do without trust and hope in the Lord, whether it's our job, our families, our children. Brothers and sisters, it can be difficult at times, I know. 
I don't live in an ivory tower. It's hard sometimes to place our whole hope and trust in the Lord during the ups and downs of life. It can be hard when on the job laboring for a difficult employer. It can be hard at home when things are not always going as you would like or hoped. And the car breaks down and the finances are strained. And It can be hard. But even in the messiness of life, in all that the Lord has called you to do, he simply says, remember to trust me. You're not there by accident. I've got you. You trust me. Unless the Lord builds a house, we labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, we watch in vain. You know, the Lord didn't ask us to do this because he doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't stand in the city of heaven and the gates of heaven and shout down from heaven, trust me. You can do it. No, he too had to learn this lesson. The Lord of glory. For he was called upon to trust his Father. I know it seems odd to you. You might think that seems so weird that the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, was called upon to trust his Father and had to learn obedience through the things that he suffered, but he did. He trusted his father. All that he did was because of his father. He served at the command of his father. He ministered to the lowly and the weak because of his father. He set his face with resolute determination to Jerusalem, ascending to the place of worship to offer his life as an act of worship, all the while trusting his father. Into thy hands I commit my spirit, he cried. He trusted his father. He trusted his father. He is not only the one who trusted his father. He is the one who builds the house and watches over the city. The city not made with hands. The city of the Most High. The heavenly Jerusalem. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we trust him as we labor, as we work, as we raise our homes. We place our hope, our trust in Him only. And as you do, you can be assured. As it was assured to the Son of God, it will be assured to you as His brothers and sisters. You will not labor in vain. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and while pointed at times and the difficulties of the things that we hear, we recognize how far short we fall of these things. We are so thankful that you've given us Christ who learned these also. We thank you that you forgive us in the areas in which we must make changes. And so we plead with you, Father, that you would work in us more trust for you, more comfort in knowing that you are for us. Be gracious to us and help all of us, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.